You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Now, the Go Wild app has added some really cool and exciting functionality to their app. And the first one I want to talk about is the Near Me function. And basically what this does, it allows you to engage and connect with people in your area. You guys can talk about gear. You guys can talk about hunting areas. You guys can talk about what's going on in the woods. And it just allows the users to be more of a community and connect easier. The second part is the gearbox. And what the gearbox is, it is a an opportunity for the users to not only see reviews on products and see what the Go Wild community is using in the field, what products they're using, but it also allows you guys to purchase up to 150,000 products. There's you, there's a shopping function on it. So Check out the Go Wild app. If you haven't downloaded it to your phone yet, you need to, and you can do that at any app store that is currently available. Go Wild. It's an awesome app. Check them out. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of time plus 1% of money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and money back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's (laughs) fishandwildlife.org. All right. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Ewing, and this is episode eight. Uh, This week on the podcast, I am joined uh, by Chad Rashar from Florida. Um, Chad and I have a really good conversation. Uh, We talk a lot about um, the landscape of conservation uh, down in his home state of Florida um, and and really Chad's um, day job as a project scientist. Um, and how that kind of gives him a unique um, outlook and perspective um, when it comes to to conservation, especially there in Florida. Um, Chad spends a lot of his free time um, with some national conservation organizations, um, along with um, some that are very local and specific to Florida. So it's interesting to to hear Chad's take on things. Uh, Florida is is kind of a completely different beast uh, in terms of wildlife given freshwater saltwater um all of the uh the wetlands that they have and then really some of the the animals and things like that that are unique to florida so it's cool to hear um chad talk about those and and how he's um 
spending his time with, with his organizations uh, and what he's doing to be able to, to give back to conservation um, and really what, uh, you know, what it means to him and what he's hoping to accomplish um, through both his, his personal job and then through um, his time volunteering with conservation orgs as well. So uh, really good, fun conversation with Chad that I hope you guys enjoy. Okay, welcome back, everyone. I am joined today by Chad Rashar. Chad, how's it going today? Yeah, very well. And yourself, Marcus? I'm doing well, thanks. It's uh, I know we were just talking before we actually started recording here, but we've been trying to do this for like a month now. So the fact that uh, we were both able to carve out some time, I know you had to reschedule and I had to reschedule, and we kept going back and forth, and we tried to do some weekend stuff. And uh, now, finally, right before the holiday here, we're able to, to take some time to talk. Yeah, I'm glad we can make this happen, man. I really look forward to our conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. Same here. So I kind of like to set the stage, Chad. I mean, the the podcast is called The Average Conservationist Podcast, uh, obviously brought to you um, in partner with 2% for Conservation. Um, so, and, and a lot of the guests that I speak to uh, have regular day jobs, right? And, and they're spending a good amount of their time with conservation uh, in their free times, their nights, their weekends. So tell me, what is it that you do? Uh, what is your, I guess, your day job, your regular job? Sure. Yeah. So I work for a full service design engineering firm and um, we're located primarily in the Southeast. We have offices in Florida, North Carolina and Georgia. And so my role is a senior scientist, like a project manager. And um, I assist all of our projects and do client management and essentially ensure that we're making good decisions um, in our design engineering projects such that they meet the environmental regulations and then also to avoid and minimize any uh perceived or realistic aspects that they might have for the environment for natural resource functions. Right. Now, it, it, that's interesting because I know early on when we had talked, you had mentioned that there was a little bit of crossover between uh, like the conservation work that you're doing and then your job as well. So being a conservationist, being heavily involved in conservation down there in Florida, how much does that kind of weigh in when you're making decisions for work? Yeah, it's just, I would say it's just a strategy that I have internally. Um, I, I realize that um, development is going to happen, and we have a lot of development that happens in Florida. You know, we've got 22 million people in Florida. Um, there's no shortage of folks to, to deal with, and it's there's a lot of development that happens because of an influx of people that are non-Floridians. And so um, my role and my job is to ensure that, that we make good decisions for our firm, and we direct our clients to make good decisions, but it's it's basically grounded in the fact of um, from an environmental regulation perspective. But what what we do early on in a project is evaluate it, and um, we think about how it's going to be permitted and what natural resource impacts may or may not occur when it comes to like listed species, wetland impacts, impaired waters, water quality, and so by getting ahead of it, I think we steer clients in the in their best direction possible. Yeah, because the, the wetlands is one that Florida obviously has to deal with a lot more than, than a lot of other states. I mean, um, just the the sheer amount of land that's considered wetland down there is, uh, I mean, I don't know if there's many states that, that really compare in that regard. Yeah, I think Minnesota might have as many wetlands as Florida sure. just because of its topography. But, you know, the southeast coastal plain is, is has a variety of different wetland habitats. And most people, when you think about wetlands, you're thinking about marshes. Well, we have coastal, we have coastal wetlands as well. You know, the Indian River Lagoon, for example, on our east coast is a 156 mile long estuary that's unique to like any other feature. There's another estuary in Texas that's kind of similar, 
but the Indian River Lagoon in itself is just a vast ecosystem. You could almost compare it to one of the Great Lakes. Really? See, uh, yeah. see, that's that's news to me. And, and again, before we started recording here, I said that there was some some very Florida specific stuff that I was interested in, just because you know I'm, I'm here in the Midwest and and I don't get to really experience any of that stuff. Sure. Yeah, I mean, Florida is very dynamic when it comes to that. You know, we've got large river systems. The St. Johns River is one of the few rivers that flows north, and it covers 18 counties. So it starts in, like, central Florida and then discharges uh, just north of Jacksonville. So there's some fascinating things in Florida. Um, And because of all that ecological diversity, it also provides us with a lot of wildlife. So we've got our diversity of wildlife is insane, game species and non-game species. Yeah, that was kind of where I was was kind of headed next is, well, one more question kind of uh, as as work pertains to conservation. Did you, I mean, how long, well, I guess first, how long have you been at your at your job? Um, I've been with this firm for three and a half years. And then prior to that, I worked for a state agency as a senior scientist and then also a soil scientist. So I've always been in this industry, just worn a couple of different hats. Okay. Now, do you think that that, that role that, you know, the, the position that you've held, um, did that make you want to get more involved with conservation? The more you were kind of uh, involved with, with the planning and looking at the environmental impacts on things? Yes, certainly. Um, starting when I was, oh, about 20 years old, I prof- I've been basically involved in some kind of wildlife or conservation-related job function since I was 20. I worked for a roadside attraction in Kissimmee, in Kissimmee, Florida, called Gatorland. I don't know if you've ever been to Orlando and done yeah, the Yeah, I've, I've been to Kissimmee before, sure. Okay. So I was involved uh, working there as basically like a, a curator. You know, there's a lot of animals there that needed attention. It was basically like a small zoo. And so I was exposed to uh, a lot of animals young in my life. Um, and then I, m- I met my first mentor there. He was my boss. And, and we basically traveled Florida in our spare time. And he enlightened me to a lot of like natural resource beauties and wonders. And he, I think he really instilled uh, wonderlust in my mind. And that's, that's really where, where it all came from. It's just that, that wonderlust activity. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting that you say that with all like the different like beauty and, and natural resource and things like that, that Florida has to offer. And, you know, I think that that's one thing that kind of the more I speak to people or just kind of observe from afar is, man, each state is so unique and has, you know, just an abundance of, of things. If you're willing to explore and willing to, you know, make a drive that, you know, you probably, if you kind of stay in your little bubble or you stay in your, you know, your safe space, let's call it, um, where there's just, it's incredible the things that, uh, the diversity, you know, from each state and, and just the natural resources that are out there, if you're willing to look for them. Yeah, certainly. You know, I had the good fortune last summer of visiting your home state, and I spent two days in the UP. Basically, we drove from Ann Arbor, Michigan to Duluth, Minnesota with my son. We did like a, a quick big vacation, basically, with my with my children and um, spent two days in the UP. I wish I could have spent five. Like, it drove me crazy that we had to get through there so quick, but we stopped at three or four locations across the Mackinac Bridge. Actually, my great uncle was an engineer on the construction project for the Mackinac Bridge, so that I've got like a, a Rashar connection to that. Yeah. Um, but 
I've had the fortune of traveling to a lot of places. And the first thing I want to do is get out of the city and get into the outdoors because I want to see the things that the locals get to see that the cities and the, the concrete jungle doesn't interest me near as much. It's just going to, uh, like, uh, is it Timaqua falls? Tequamanin. Tequamanin falls. Tequamanin. Yep. Sorry. Tequamanin. No, that's all right. So we hiked there for like four hours and, um, that just, gave me the fuel to keep driving after spending four hours hiking around. Yeah, there's so, I mean, I, I grew up in, in northern lower Michigan, so I was about hour hour and 20 minutes from the Mackinac Bridge, just kind of southeast a little bit, right off 75. And uh, for, and I mean, I've been to the UP. Actually, my, my parents, after I graduated high school, moved to the UP to Marquette. So they were up there for 10, 12 years. Um, so yeah, I've got to experience, you know, a decent amount of the UP, but the craziest story I have about the UP is so for my bachelor party, this is, you know, seven, eight years ago before I got married. Um, we, I didn't want the traditional bachelor party. I, I didn't want to go, you know, to, you know, Vegas or, you know, whatever, some big city and bar hop, you know, for a weekend, you know, my, my friends knew how into the outdoors and stuff that I was. So we uh, took a camping trip to the UP, so we we drove as far as Mackinac City the first night, and just we just crashed in a hotel there, and then got up early the next morning, and actually went and um, explored some caves up mm-hmm. in uh, up in the UP, which I I didn't know they existed. I had never done it before. Uh, one of the guys that was with our group, he had done it once before a few years ago with one of his friends, and uh, I mean we were literally driving down these you know logging roads, and all of a sudden you come to kind of where you can't drive anymore. You park the car, you walk through the mo- through the woods for, I don't know, quarter, half mile, and all of a sudden the ground just opens up. There's just this big, huge hole, and, you know, it's probably 20 feet down. You climb down, and then it's just pitch black, and there's, at first, you know, there's water up to your knees, and you're just kind of feeling your way along. Everyone's got headlamps on, and then it just kind of starts to shrink up, right? It gets smaller and right. smaller. Next thing you know, if you feel like you've been crawling for, you know, two, 300 yards, and it's probably you know, 40 or something like that, just with, with the darkness and the water and everything like that. And the further you go in there, now we're on our hands and knees because it's so small in there and you got water up to your chin. I mean, it just, it gives you a real claustrophobic uh, feeling when, when you're in something like that. But, you know, I had no idea that Michigan had things like that to offer. So kind of going back to what we were saying, it's, it's incredible if you just take the time to explore what you can find. Yeah. Hey, my bachelor's trip was a 50 mile offshore trip out of St. Augustine. So we, I think we were on the boat for three and a half hours before we got to the bottom ground. I think there were seven of us total. So I, we have a, a similar vein in the fact that, um, that's how I wanted to spend my time with my friends is we just went offshore fishing for, I think it was like a 15 hour trip. It was insane. That's awesome. Yeah. And I had, I mean, there was probably seven or eight of us that went, and two or three of them at least had never been to the UP. Born and raised in Michigan, and had never been to the That's UP. Sad. So it is right; it really is. So it was. I was glad to kind of expose them to to the stuff that I really enjoy to do. Yeah, that Uper land, man. There's a lot left up there that I want to see. I'm definitely planning another trip soon. Our intention was to be there for at least a week this year, but obviously with this crisis we have going on, um, travel is restricted, and we had to cancel our summer plans. Yeah, God's country up there, that's for sure. Definitely. So, so I kind of going back a little bit. Tell me how how were you introduced to the outdoors? I mean, what kind of sparked that love for it? Yeah, so I grew up in South Georgia, and it was fairly rural, I would say. I mean, we lived in a, in a city. It was a military city for the most part, not also Georgia. 
And um, you just you can't get away from the outdoors in rural South Georgia because it surrounds you. You know, you get cotton yeah. and peanut fields. And um, my paternal side of the family uh, grew up in Nebraska and Illinois. So they did a lot of wing shooting. Mm-hmm. And so I always heard tales of all the pheasant hunting they used to do, like my dad and, and uncles used to do with, with grandpa. And uh, obviously wing shooting in South Georgia is a lot different. It's like it would just be quail. Quail populations in Georgia are pretty sparse. I mean, you can go to – you know, private clubs and, and shoot quail back then and still today. But I was real fortunate that my, my grandfather uh, and my uncles basically were involved in a, in a deer lease in Lumpkin, Georgia, and um, got to spend like two or three years hunting with them on the weekends. You know, I was 13, 14 years old, and that just that just drove a spark. And then I used to fish all the time, man. There are farm ponds all over South Georgia, and so we go catch catfish and brim and bass and and really got exposed to it that way. So I, I think that when you grow up in a rural area, you can't hide from the outdoors. You know, you're, you're inside of it at that point. Yeah. I mean, that's growing up in, in, in northern lower Michigan. I mean, it's it's the same type of thing, right? It's you can't you can't. I mean, I had one blinking stoplight in the town I grew up in. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. there's you're surrounded. I mean, I think we just got our first like subway you know, maybe like 10 years ago in the town I grew up in. So it's that's uh, progress, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. So now expose that, you know, at a young age and, <clears throat> and kind of really sparked your interest for it. At what point in your life did you kind of make that switch from, you know, enjoying the outdoors and, and hunting and fishing to, okay, how can I, how can I get more involved? How can I become, you know, more on the conservation side of things? Yeah. I've been reflecting on that a lot recently because I've been trying to think through that in my mind. And, um, I think it was kind of grounded in early on, at least in high school in Ducks Unlimited, because I think Ducks Unlimited was a fantastic organization. And, um, I was always intrigued by ducks I have in my office, I've got probably 30 or 40 duck stamps. I've always felt like making that commitment that, you know, back then it was only, uh, it was $10 or $15 yeah. when I was younger and now it's, you know, now it's $25. So for some odd reason, I was attracted to Ducks Unlimited at an early age and I still have a passion for DU moving forward and all the great things that they've done. But, you know, in one of my career hats, um, you know, I did a lot of longitudinal scientific studies. So you spend a lot of time in nature. And also, you know, when you live in Florida, you see a lot of development. I mean, development was rampant for a period of time. And you get to reflect on um, there are certain areas in Florida, in my humble opinion, that just should not be developed. There are other areas that, uh, from a natural resource perspective, um, aren't as negative to develop. And I saw a lot of places... um, Saw a lot of sections of Florida that were paved, and it just gave me pause. Um, and so I just started thinking about it, like from a scientific viewshed, and then did a lot. I had to educate myself a lot because there's a lot of resources out there that I was unaware of, and there still are. I, I'm learning stuff about conservation on a daily, weekly basis. But I think it just got to a point, and then. Um, got involved with BHA and the Florida Wildlife Corridor, and it's really snowballed in the last four to five years as far as becoming more aware and learning the critical stakeholders and the key players in the game, and then also how to develop your approach as far as being an outdoorsman in what might be considered uh, conservation can also be considered in a negative light because, like, 
if you wear the environmentalist badge, a lot of people might see you as being against everything. And that, that's not true at all. Yeah, I think there's <clears throat> there's definitely uh, an avenue or there's you can definitely be um, in support of both of those things. Right. From the from an yeah. environmental side, environmental uh, side of things and also from a, a wildlife side of things as well. I mean, it, that's kind of the, the funny thing about conservation is, I mean, there's so many different interpretations of it and what people do to, to practice conservation, right? So I don't think that just because someone wants to look at it one way means that they're wrong because someone looks at it from, from another viewpoint, you know? Right. Yeah. And I hate getting painted into a corner. And, um, often when I walk into a room, they see me as a, as a consumptive user and, and I am a consumptive user. Uh, I know where most of my food comes from when it hits mm-hmm. the plate because I was involved with it, you know, from the beginning. Um, but I, I guess I have the fortune of, of defaulting back to, you know, I'm a classically trained soil scientist with a hydrologic background, natural resource management. I, I manage, you know, property um, here in Keystone. Um, so I, I think I'm able to look at it through several different lenses and, and that allows me to hopefully make better decisions. Well, I think that's a, a unique, well, that's what makes you unique in this regard too, because not a lot of people have that scientific background you know, not a lot of people are able to kind of separate themselves and look at it from multiple viewpoints to, you know, to make an educated decision. Because, you know, for for you, for example, I mean, being a consumptive user, you know, you hunt, you fish, you know where your food comes from. So that that's a big part of, you know, why you want to maintain and preserve, you know, our habitat and our wildlife and things like that. But on the same side, from a professional standpoint, you know, you're trying to make the best decision for, you know, for your company that also, you know, protects protects the the land uh and the resources that are in that land so i think that's i think if more people kind of you know not everyone's a classically you know trained scientist but i think if you do some research uh you know it it, sometimes people can be a bit short-sighted in in how they view things and getting more viewpoints is only going to help you know make a a better educated decision on you know whatever the whatever the situation is yeah. And I think forcing ourselves to be outside of exposed outside of our comfort zones, pretty impactful as well. It's easy to stay in that hunting fishing bubble, but that there's only a small percentage of folks that live in that bubble. And I'm just as happy to go out and, and bird watch. And I've, I've participated in sea turtle studies in the past. Like I just love animals, man. Like I, I love all the animals I enjoy. I appreciate our relationship with animals and it doesn't bother me to hunt and fish because ultimately that kind of fuels my passion sometimes to ensure that I'm, I'm being a part of the conservation mission. Now you said you, you're involved with BHA there in Florida is, I mean, cause, cause BHA, I mean, I'm, I'm a member of BHA as well. And that's a, an organization that focuses a, a lot of their um, efforts on, um, you know, obviously public land and access to those Correct. public lands. So, I mean, is that, in Florida, I mean, how much public land is there in Florida? Because when I think of, of Florida, I don't necessarily think of like rampant public land with that you can just get out on and, and go chase animals. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and when I was at Ronde in 2017, I talked to a lot of Western folks and folks from across the country, and they were very surprised to hear that Florida would even have an interest in BHA as far as public land perspective. So surprisingly enough, there's 9.1 million acres of public land in Florida. And that doesn't even take into account our submerged sovereign lands. So lakes, rivers, streams, creeks, 
that doesn't factor in because that's um, owned by the state anyways. So mm-hmm. we have a lot more state management as opposed to federal management of lands. Very limited federal management, although we do have three national forests. The first wildlife refuge ever was established in Florida by Teddy Roosevelt. So there's some unique public land stories out there that I just don't think get told very often. Yeah, and I think especially with the way things have kind of trended over the last you know, 10 years with social media and, and how everything is so much more in the light in terms of, you know, hunting. And it seems like the popular things are, you know, white-tailed deer, elk, and you know, really a lot of the Western species is, is what a lot of people want to talk about and gravitate towards. So yeah, when, when people think about Florida, they're not thinking of, you know, these big, huge, you know, white tails or, or anything like that. I mean, I mean, personally, when I think of Florida, I mean, I think of, I think of, you know, fishing and I think of yeah. like turkey hunting. Right. I mean, for, yeah. for whatever reason, those are the ones that kind of pop in into my head. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, our, our saltwater angling and our bass angling is huge. I mean, it's a billion dollar business. Um, saltwater and, and bass alone is a billion dollar business. I, I don't think that people come to Florida to hunt deer, but don't be surprised if you see, you know, there's there's dozens, if not hundreds of 140, 150 class whitetails that are killed in Florida every year. And, and we actually have a really strong deer population in general. So the, the, the generalist hunter in Florida, um, you know, deer hunts a fair amount. I mean, all my friends, we deer hunt, you know, frequently. So is it a, is it Indiana? Is it Ohio? Are you looking at 200, 220 inch right. deer, Boone and Crockett? No, but, yeah. but, but you have to change your scale, right? So sure. a trophy buck in Florida is a hundred inches or better. You can get your name in the book for a hundred inch buck in Florida or better. And, you know, you don't see them very often, but a uh, hundred and, you know, 40, 150 pound buck is considered to be a tanker in Florida. Yeah. Now, is that a lot of the, <clears throat> the hunting, is that, more in like the northern area, the Panhandle, or is it you know kind of spread spread all, all out all across Florida, man? Yeah. All across Florida. The only white-tailed deer you can't kill is the Keys deer down in the Florida Keys. They're an endangered species. Ah, okay, well, that's good to know. So, along with being well as a member of BHA, but you also um, you you hold a position with um, the Florida chapter. What uh, what do you do with them? Yeah, so uh, actually I helped with the Southeast chapter to stand that up in 2017. So that was uh, six different states across the state of, across the Southeast. And then we have recently uh, decided that we had the substantial membership to kind of not bust up, but to, to get back into what BHA kind of meant to do to have a statewide population. So um, we're, we're actively pursuing that right now. And uh, hopefully we'll have a final decision in the near future. Well, that's great. I mean... So what does being like a a chapter chair, I mean, what does that involve? Because, you know, I spoke with a guest last week here in Michigan who's a a chapter chair um, for BHA here in Michigan. But what does that look like for you? Yeah, when we did the Southeast, you know, we had a great team of people across, you know, six different states, seven different states in the beginning when Tennessee was associated. And it was kind of like steering the pirate ship. You know, you've got got a (laughs) rowdy crew. They've got a lot of passion. And uh, you got to swab the deck. You got to make sure that everything is is happening. Make sure the sails are up. You're pointed in the right direction. The compass is working. So it was a lot of fun, man. It, it was it was a very interesting personal and professional challenge. And I would never take anything away from it. I, I got to meet a ton of great people. 
Um, still have friendships with with a lot of guys that I would never met before. I learned a lot about other opportunities. Um, so was able to go to Mississippi and hunt last October. Um, hunt and actually we just no we hunted squirrels and we we went stream fishing so i think it just opened my eyes a a little bit more i've hunted out west several times um but the southeast has so much more to be explored and uh it it was a fun trip and i enjoyed it yeah i mean that's it it, it's funny you mentioned that um you know just the, the different people you were exposed to and that you got to meet that you probably otherwise wouldn't have i mean it's the same way with this podcast right i mean so it, it, whether you've, you listen to, to some of the episodes leading up to this, I mean, I've had people from, you know, from Georgia, South Dakota, Montana. And what's cool is like after every episode we're done recording, you know, we'll, we'll kind of talk for a few minutes or stay in touch. And I've been invited to go bow fishing, to come mm-hmm. hunt down in South Carolina, chase mule deer out in South Dakota. So it's really cool that, you know, I, I probably never, you know, Chad, you and I probably never would have met other without this podcast and things like that. And, and to find other people that are passionate about the same things as you, that, you know, have the same, you know, more or less outlook on conservation and wildlife and the outdoors that you do is, I mean, sometimes it can be tough to find because, I mean, you know, you're in Florida, I'm in Michigan, I have my kind of tight knit group of people who I, you know, tend to recreate outdoors with. So to, to open up that bubble is something that's, that's really cool. And it's one of the things that I've enjoyed most about this. Yeah, and I think in the outdoors community and the hunting and angling community, you'll see how welcoming people are. Um, there's there's a lot of like, hey, uh, would you like to come explore some of my backcountry? Like, I'd love to share an experience with you. Or has your family ever gone to a spring and, and done a, a spring run? Or, I, man, I just want to I want to share some of my passion with folks and um, provide them an opportunity to see something unique. And and I, I've got tons to share the only limiting factor i have is time but i always make time to to encourage other people to enjoy what they probably don't know they have yeah and i'm at that same point where i i love to hunt and i love to fish but if i can get somebody else involved and share that passion with them to me that's that's way more rewarding than you know harvesting a deer or catching you know catching a nice brown trout or something like that i mean because you know i know what that feels like i've i've done it before but, and I know how good it makes me feel and how excited I am. Like, I want to share that with someone else because they're not going to get that, you know, without actually getting involved in it. Yeah. And one thing I've, I've told myself a lot is you can't buy that experience, right? Like there's, you can have all the money in the world, but when you see the, the twinkle in someone's eye or a, a giant smile on a young person's face, whenever they pull up, you know, their personal best fish or they, they harvest a turkey for the first time or squeeze a trigger on a nice flock of ducks, you just can't buy it, man. The only way you can do it is to live it. Yeah. I 100% agree with that. Um, and it's, it's kind of going along with, with the conservation organizations that you're involved with here, obviously we were introduced because of our partner, 2% for Conservation. Um, you are a committee member for 2% for Conservation down there uh, in the Southeast in Florida. So tell me about kind of how you got hooked up with 2%, how it was introduced to you, and then obviously how you became um, a committee member for them. Sure. I can't remember exactly who uh, made me aware of 2%, but first thing I did is went to the website. I kind of cruised around. I was like, you know what? This makes a lot of sense. You know, 1% of time, 1% of money. I spent a lot of time in the conservation field. Um, I, I told, uh, 
oh, we were talking about it earlier, and um, I was like, me, you need like a five percent conservation because like I feel like I spent four percent of my income on conservation if you relate it all. <laughs> but I don't know that we're headed that direction. But yeah, I, I have a strong drive for two percent. Um, I've tried to get several businesses and communities involved in two percent, making progress down here a little bit. There's three. There are three businesses that are currently very interested in joining up. Um, but that mantra whole, rings true for me a lot. And so whenever that uh, the committee member was initially offered, um, I remember you had like set up, there's like three days where the phone, like there's a three day stretch where you call in and you basically do an interview. And um, I remember like having to call in several times and finally had a conversation. It led to a very productive and quick conversation. And um, it's, it's been, it's been very enlightening to me as well. It's just one more chapter, one more evolution in how I think through how I can live you know, day to day and expose other people to opportunities that they might not be aware of. So how are you kind of getting people involved? I mean, are you seeking out kind of companies that are in the outdoor space or just companies that, you know, probably, especially through, um, through your job, you know, you come across some, some companies that probably have some type of interest in the outdoors. I mean, how is that, that, uh, that process initiated for you? Yeah, um, it's it's been a little bit challenging because I think that uh, the Southeast hasn't had as much exposure to two percent as let's just say the westerns, mm -hmm. the western uh, platforms. But um, there have been a fair amount of of individuals and companies that have have after spending time with them and talking to them and and sharing with them, you know, these are some other companies that have. That have sailed up, you know, they, they've essentially uh, decided that they want to have some level of commitment to two percent. Um, and I think my next big step is to is to land, you know, two or three good companies in Florida, and then that way it'll be more realistic. Because when they look at that map, it's like, well, you know, there's there's no there's none here. So why aren't there any here? Well, we just haven't gotten there yet. But that's you know that's where we want to lead into. But you know, there are a lot of big outdoor companies in Florida, um, and I think that I that message hasn't gotten to them yet it will resonate with them it's just we we haven't been able to to make that first that first jump yeah and i think it's uh it just takes one right like it just takes one company to see maybe it's a competitor uh you know maybe it's someone who's in the same space but not a competitor to see that they're making that commitment and you know it's not that, I mean, it's not a lot, you know, especially if you take like a, a larger company, you know, and you say, you know, you need to, it's 21 hours a year, right. That you need to, that you need to get back to conservation. I mean, that's, I mean, there's a lot of guys, I mean, you do that 21 hours on your own, right. Sure. I mean, that's that. So to, and you can count all your employees within the company. So to, to make that commitment is not, is not huge. And especially for a lot of these outdoor companies who, you know, they're, their clients, their customers are people who are recreating, you know, they're using their products to go out and hunt, to go out and fish, to go out and, you know, bird watch, you know, rec whatever the case may be. So you would think that those companies would want to give back to support what their customers love to do and, you know, use their products doing it. Yeah. Yeah. There's no shortage of opportunities here in Florida and throughout the Southeast and across the nation. Mm -hmm. um, at one point in time, Jared Frazier and I were talking about him coming down and basically spending a week. And, you know, we would do a, a quick road tour. I would line up several different opportunities for him to have discussions with. But, 
you know, that fell through with the pandemic. So yeah. hopefully when we get into a better state of affairs, more comfort level with traveling, we'll be able to do that. And, and I, I would thoroughly enjoy spending at least just a few days with Jerry putting in front of some opportunities and, and we can focus our attention on on building the ranks. Yeah. And Jared's passion for for not only, you know, two percent submission, but just conservation in general is I mean, it's 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 pretty unrivaled, you know, just you know, just if you know, when I speak to him on the phone for maybe five or 10 minutes throughout the course of a work week, like it's just, he just has uh, another level of energy that you just don't see very often when you put that towards something like 2% or just conservation in general. I mean, it's, uh, it does a lot of good things. Yeah. He's the espresso of the coffee community, right? <laughs> That's a very good way to put it. <laughs> um, so we talked about some of the, uh, let's call it like the national or the the national conservation organizations, but you're also involved with um, some conservation organizations that are local to Florida. Which ones are those? Yeah. So the Florida wildlife corridor um, I've spent as a board member for them and recently as an executive board member. So it's hard to describe, but essentially if you look at the development map across Florida, there are some critical wildlife public land linkages that may even be associated with a conservation easement and so the goal of the corridor the florida wildlife corridor is to permanently protect strategic areas to allow primarily megafauna to be throughout their life cycle to travel throughout this area so if you think about large landscapes of public land or state land or conservation easements that have a level of protection associated with them you know the panther and the bear are commonly thought about as like this big charismatic megafauna. Mm-hmm. Well, it is true. They require a lot of land, and, and they, they need to be able to move throughout it from a genetic standpoint, from a food resource standpoint. Let's just say you have a, a major hurricane, and half of their habitat is flooded for a period of time. Well, they need to get out of that environment and get into an, an area where they can actually find forage, find food. But aside from the charismatic megafauna standpoint, In my mind, we do need to have strategic um, linkages throughout Florida such that we have a viable habitat overall. And once you break things up with X development, um, you ultimately have a – you create a struggle zone for wildlife and people, in my opinion – because um, it, it creates an inroad. So it's been a fun ride with them, too. There's, there's a lot moving forward. We're hopefully the goal. One of the goals moving forward is to have a statutory protection of the Florida Wildlife Corridor. And so that's been a major goal of ours. And then also a lot of outreach. And um, if you want to see some amazing videography of real Florida, um, we, the, the corridor has done an excellent job of storytelling through video. Now, I had done some some research uh, on the the Florida Wildlife Corridor. How how is it that you became involved with them? And you know, I guess what how big is the corridor for I guess for starters? Okay, so the corridor spans across the state, all the way from South Florida, going into the Panhandle and touching the Floribama region. And then up to Okefenokee in the southeast section of, of Georgia. So the corridor itself, I don't recall how many acres it would span if you were to you know, link all those polygons together. But it covers the entire state from a standpoint of, of, of like 
critical linkages. Just mm -hmm. think about like an interstate system. So we have mass transit, we have you know federal highways and interstates. So those are very strategically placed north, south, east, west for travel corridors. It's very similar from a, a Florida wildlife corridor standpoint. Okay. Now going back to like uh, like the megafauna, the the uh, the bears, uh, the panthers. I mean, are those? And this is just my not knowing really uh, Florida habitat and stuff like that. Are they? I mean, are you are you finding like bears and panthers all over? Or are they kind of in a in a general area? Well, the panthers are fairly isolated to South Florida. Mm -hmm. um, I am not a panther expert. Like, I don't even live in panther country. I've yeah. never seen a panther in person in Florida. I've seen one in Arizona, but not in Florida. Um, so they their populations are fairly isolated. Bears, alternatively, um, there are good meta populations of bears throughout Florida. So... Um, it's kind of a touchy subject because those two species alone are very defining in Florida. And um, I think they're valuable and I, I enjoy seeing bears. The airport property that I manage actually has a strong population of bears and it's not uncommon to see several a year on trail cameras. We get sows and cubs consistently. They're amazing to watch and see. They're fascinating critters. Um, but I, I will say that those two species in particular um, there's a lot of heartfelt passion in, in Florida about those two. So it's kind of a, a challenging discussion topic. Yeah. And it, it seems to me that with, with kind of the, the love or admiration that Floridians have for, for those two, um, animals, I mean, uh, panthers specifically, right? I mean, it's, you're not finding those in every state or, you know, even half the states, like you find black bear or something mm -hmm. um, that with the wildlife corridor, people would be, you know, all all in for something like that to help protect something that they kind of hold so near and dear to, to their state. Certainly. Yeah, it's it's been a big driver. But, you know, there, there has been a focus on those charismatic megafauna, but there are thousands of other species that rely on the corridor as well. You know, there's no shortage of listed imperiled species in Florida, red cockaded woodpecker, Florida scrub, scrub jay, uh, you know, We've got a lot of herpetofauna across the state that are imperiled, endangered. It's really unfortunate when you look at the state-listed species as far as how many species have an impact. And primarily, it's not because lack of forage. It's just lack of, of critical habitat to support their life cycle. Yeah, and then like you said, with the, with the kind of rampant development in certain parts, yeah, it just makes that area that they have to kind of thrive and live on just smaller and smaller. Yeah, and that's just part of the process, and that's yep. why we're trying to think about being strategic and understanding that we are going to have develop in Florida, development in Florida, but how can we make the best decision moving forward? Yeah, and I think that's that that should ultimately be the goal for you know not just in Florida, but for for so many other states out there that are going through you know development and that have such a diverse habitat and wildlife that you know you could be kind of impeding upon and and you know threatening for for the future yeah and redevelopment there's a there's a huge in my mind redevelopment is a good is a good approach regarding uh taking advantage of areas that have already you know have been altered mm -hmm. so maximizing that opportunity yeah instead of just bulldozing something else or clearing something else for a new building yeah that's that's a that's a very good point um one of the other uh, organizations that you're a part of down there in Florida, which is something that I was, uh, I, I kind of wanted to talk about was the, uh, operation outdoor freedom. 
Yeah, so Operation Outdoor Freedom, OOF, um, is sponsored by the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Affairs. And so essentially, if you are a considered a 30% disabled veteran or Purple Heart recipient, you get to sign up for a pretty unique opportunity such that it's, it's kind of like a quota hunt. So you, if you're interested in this, in, in a certain hunting, fishing, outdoor event, you apply for it. And then if you're selected, then you get to participate in it. And um, there are several tracts of land that are managed by the Florida Forest Service that aren't WMAs. However, they do offer veteran hunts or angling events on them. So it's, it's kind of taking advantage of something such that there isn't really the infrastructure or perhaps the resources in play to have a, a traditional wildlife management area. Mm-hmm. But uh, they'll, they'll host, you know, a few hunts a year to capitalize on that asset. So um, I don't know if that describes it fairly well from a 10,000 foot angle, but, but that's what it essentially boils down to is it, it's, it's veteran grounded. Um, it's giving back to a veteran population. Um, not only is it the opportunity to harvest game, but it's fellowship time. That's what it's all about, man. It's all about the fellowship. Yeah. And I'd imagine for, I mean, I, I did not serve, um, in, in the military in any capacity, but you know, just from stuff I see or read, you know, obviously the, the brotherhood, you know, the, the camaraderie that comes with, you know, putting your life on the line and protecting the, you know, the guy next to you or the girl next to you. Um, that's something that, uh, it's hard to find in other walks of life if, if it's even possible to find it. Right. And so I I would imagine that something like this is, is a good way to kind of, I mean, you, you you touched on it earlier, right? The, the brotherhood of, of the outdoors is it's a very welcoming community. We're all, uh, essentially after the same things, um, in terms of, you know, trying to harvest an animal or just enjoy the outdoors. So it, that's the, the whole giving back to, to veterans is something that I've always found just to be awesome because I've seen plenty of videos in the past where, um, you know, hunting kind of saves someone. It kind of takes them out of this, this hole that they're in, you know, um, post-service. And I see more and more organizations like this kind of popping up throughout the country. And I think it's, it's, it's an absolutely incredible thing. Yeah, and I've enjoyed it a lot. Um, and if you didn't know, BHA recently released their Armed Forces Initiative. So BHA is gravitating to it as well. Not, not to say that they're gravitating. That's not the right word. They're essentially um, welcoming it and trying to open up a focus point such that, you know, there's an opportunity. There, here's a here's a platform, and, you know, they're putting some resources into it. So I think it's kind of similar to what Operation Outdoor Freedom has done. And I, I'll tell you, I've gotten out of it as much as I put into it. But my fundamental goal for each, so I hunt, I host a white-tailed deer hunt and then a turkey hunt every year. And then if I have a little bit extra time, I'll, I'll help guide for another hunt that might be going on locally. But my goal as I introduce and we get people I've never met before, you know, I, I, I call them on the phone, you know, several weeks in advance of the hunt. I kind of give them a lay, a lay down as far as, you know, what the goals and initiatives are. I send them some photos of what we're, what we're working with. But my goal is just to have a fun camp. And if we if we harvest deer or kill a few turkeys, then that's awesome. But we're going to have a good time. We're going to eat wild game the entire time. We're going to sit around a campfire and tell lies and stories until we're just ready <laughs> until it's time to go to bed. And um, most of the time, uh, I would say seventy to eighty percent of the folks of the guys and, and la- the folks that come 
um, we end up, you know, continuing some sort of relationship as far as, you know, we're friends. Now, with with the veterans that are involved in this program, are they veterans who have had experience hunting or fishing or the outdoors in general? Or are they, is it something that's new to them? Yeah, it's a mixed bag. Um, so I, I, I open it up to everyone and I encourage people to say, if you haven't experienced hunting, this is a good place to come to because I've got a, a handful of, of friends that ultimately guide and they assist you. So it's not like you're just going to, we're going to dump you out in the woods and right. say you'll figure it out, especially turkey hunting, right? Turkey hunting is very intimate here in Florida. It's a lot of pivot. It's a lot of run and gun. You're constantly trying to tack with your approach. And so um, the, the deer hunting a l- little bit less uh, complicated because you can be in a ground blind or be in a tree stand or what have you. But I do share with people, don't be concerned if you don't have a lot of experience. Um, come prepared. You know, be prepared to shoot your bow, to shoot your firearm, whatever. But um, as far as the hunting, uh, the the strategies involved or not knowing where to be, we'll handle all that, man. Yeah, and I'd imagine that that takes a, a pretty big load off of, of these guys, especially if they're if they're new to the outdoors, right? To to know that all they have to do is essentially you know show up and and if they're proficient with a bow or a firearm, you know that's that's all that they need to take care of and. I talked with with some some previous guests that you know not only veterans but just you know just adults in general. It can be hard to to get into hunting at a later stage in life, right? Just because it's you know for you for you know you and I for example, we started at a young age. You know our our dads, our grandpas, it kind of introduced us to us introduced it to us. So it was it was very natural. It was it was what we knew. And then when it you know when I grew up, I mean I. I at least had a good foundation to get myself started and and not everyone has that opportunity so if you know if you're taking a, a veteran who um has never hunted before i mean it's it's a good way to to ease them into it and to give them confidence to do it on their own going forward yeah and then we do a lot of debriefing you know you do that morning hunt it's like well what'd you like about that like would, would you know is there something that you want to change this place? i mean we've got 2700 acres to work with here what do you want to do differently and so, yes, and then obviously, you know, even just sitting around the campfire and talking about tactics, we talk a lot about tactics if they haven't been exposed to a lot. Turkey hunting is probably my best example. Mm-hmm. Deer hunting is a little less challenging in my opinion, but turkey hunting, especially these Osceolas and these Easterns, um, they're brutal, man. They can just whip your ass every morning. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I mean, I've I've only turkey hunted a few times, but it's uh, it can it can be very frustrating because you know, they're talking to you and then they're, you know, they'll just disappear, right? Yeah. Just in the blink of an eye and you've got to reevaluate your entire setup. Yeah. And what's weird and complicated about this airport property is here, the, the wildlife out here are exposed to sounds all the time. They hear planes. There's a military installation just to the north of us that are firing off ordnance throughout the year. So our turkeys are very tight lipped. You might get two responses to a call. But you're hunting with your eyes far more than you're hunting with your ears. And as you might know, uh, turkey's eyesight is insane. If they could smell, you would never kill them. (laughs) They'd be so overpopulated. (laughs) So to kind of transition a little bit talking about turkey. So, I mean, what does... What does the rest of 2020 uh, from a hunting standpoint look like for you? I mean, given the pandemic and and everything like that, I don't know if you had some out-of-state stuff planned that maybe fell through. Um, I don't have anything that's fallen through yet. Uh, My dad drew bull elk in Arizona in September. 
So he, I think he dumped 20 points to finally make this happen. And so September 2-6, I'm supposed to be on a plane to meet him out there with my uncle and a few other guys. So I'm hoping that the uh, comfort level of traveling is fair enough to go out there. So that's my big trip for the year. We've also tentatively scheduled to go back to South Dakota for Fair Chase Pheasants for four days. Okay. Um, I'm hoping that that happens as well. I don't think any of my plans have changed, but I would say there it it's it's a little tenuous right now to think about where we're headed. Florida's uh, COVID is spiking uh, daily, unfortunately. Right. So um, it gives a lot of a lot of folks pause about how you know what decisions we should make personally and how we expose ourselves to to certain things. Yeah, I mean, have you? I mean, do you guys get a lot of out of state hunters in Florida, for, whether it's for turkey or? Or, I mean, I know you probably get a lot of um, <clears throat> out-of-state residents for saltwater fishing and things like that, but what is it like for hunting? Yeah, I don't know how many people really come here to hunt deer. I think yeah. that that would probably be the lowest. But if you want to fulfill your slam, you've got to come to Florida to get that's that true. Osceola. That's true. So, um, that's probably one of the, the larger drivers. Another kind of unknown is, is alligator hunting. You know, we got millions of alligators in Florida. And so a lot of folks do gravitate to Florida, to, you know, to kill a, a big bull gator. Yeah. Yeah, I know um, the gentleman I had on last week, um, he he guides, a, he has a, a guide service that um, does bow fishing up mm-hmm. in uh, like northeast Pennsylvania into um into New York and he says during his off season or you know like uh what do you say like February or so he comes down and he guides bow fishing for stingrays down in Florida mm-hmm. too so I can imagine that um you get a pretty good influx and then just with you know people that gravitate towards Florida you know once the cold weather comes anyway yeah yeah I know the angling you know bill fishing um if you want to hook up with a monster tarpon Florida is a, a destination for that I think the angling community, as far as tourism, is a little bit stronger than the hunting, but I've never really evaluated those metrics. But I would feel fairly comfortable thinking that um, a lot of northern man, there's no shortage of Canadians and Northerners that come down here to fish, you know, right. in the winter time, where yeah. you can, I mean, you could literally fish year round in Florida. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's one of the things that you know not a lot of other states can can really offer is is good fishing year round, especially for the variety of species uh, you know that you guys have with both freshwater and saltwater there. Mm-hmm. So, all right, Chad. Well, I really appreciate you taking some time to hop on the podcast today. I'm glad we were finally able to connect, and and I'm really glad that people were able to hear about you know all the work that you're doing down there in Florida, and and uh, it's it's really impressive. Thanks, man. There's a lot of work yet to be done, but uh, hopefully we can encourage other people to participate in the fold. Yeah, and that's the thing with conservation. It's it's a job that's that's never done. I mean, it uh, you know, like the the Great American Outdoor Act that that just passed um, in the Senate uh, last week or the week before. You know, now it's got to get through the House and then obviously get a signature from the president. But I mean, that's that's just one step. That's just one thing that we have to. I mean, it's a, it's a very monumental historic you know um, piece of legislation for conservation in the outdoors but yeah it doesn't stop there there's you get one thing done then it's just on to the next right so well that's what makes it fun too right you got to keep it it keeps your mind working you got to play the full chessboard. this is conservation is not connect four it's chess yeah absolutely that's that's a very good way to look at it because you always got to think two three steps ahead and and what's what's kind of uh in in or what's 
what does the future hold for the next uh, big big movement or, or big obstacle to overcome? Right. And maybe at some point we'll be leading instead of reacting. I, I, that's where I'd like to get to so that we can be proactive instead of reactive on more occasions. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, being reactive, I will say that these all these organizations out there, they've done a, a tremendous job of, of reacting. But you're right. It'd be nice to be proactive. Yeah, we'll get in the driver's seat at some point. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Chad, we'll have yourself a, a safe uh, holiday weekend here. And uh, it was great talking to you. You too, Marcus. Appreciate your time. All right. Take care. All right. Well, a big thank you to Chad for hopping on the podcast today. Uh, I'd also like to thank our partners over at Stone Glacier. Uh, Be sure to check them out at stoneglacier.com. I'd also like to thank 2% for Conservation. Uh, And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation, uh, including Stone Glacier, that you should support when you're shopping for your guiding services or coffee, um, books, gear, uh, really anything that you can think of. I encourage you guys also to give 2% a follow on social media, uh, where it's going to be nothing but uh, very positive conservation-driven content coming out of their uh, various pages and feeds. Uh, So again, if you'd like to learn more, uh, about 2% for conservation. Uh, you can look for them online on their various social medias or at fishandwildlife.org. Uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you. Mm-hmm.